0: Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Philip Metris. Philip is the author of 10 books, including Shrapnel Maps, The Sound of Listening, Poetry as Refuge and Resistance, Sand Opera, and I Burned at the Feast, Selected Poems of Arseny Tarkovsky. His work, poetry, translation, essays, fiction, criticism, and scholarship has garnered garnered fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Lannan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Ohio Arts Council, and the Watson Foundation. He is the recipient of the Adrian Rich Award, three Arab American Book Awards, the Lyric Poetry Prize, and the Cleveland Arts Prize. Metris has been called one of the essential poets of our time whose work is beautiful, powerful, magnetically original. He is a professor of English and director of the Peace, Justice and Human Rights Program at John Carroll University. He lives with his family in Cleveland, Ohio. Follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Philip Metris. Philip, thank you so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I'm happy to join you. Would you like to start us off with the poem?
1: Oh, sure. Um, let's see. We've had all this snow. Uh, This is actually just a little uh, bit of a joke, but I was teaching my students about lineation and I took poems and unlineated them and then invited them to think about, well, how would they lineate them? And one of the examples was a short haiku by Basho, translated by Robert Haas, one of my favorite um, favorite poems in the world, really. And it, it just goes, even in Kyoto, Hearing the cuckoo's cry, I long for Kyoto. And I've loved that so much. And this was yesterday, actually, and it it was already starting to snow. So I told them that sometimes I like to begin poems or begin poetry readings with something somewhat humorous. And so I shared with them, even in Cleveland, shoveling under another snowstorm, I long for Cleveland. (laughs) (laughs) it's not really it's not really a, a poem so much as I don't
0: know a, I don't know just a, a funny little thing I guess um, I love it I that's that is our first haiku so that... <laughs> I mean poet po- poets uh you know sometimes
1: have um looked down on haiku as some sort of fifth grade assignment but of course they have this long and beautiful history and uh you know it, their their magic is is somewhat lost in translation, I think, except for those you know most incredible translations where you feel that, you know, that sudden jolt of surprise, you know.
0: Yeah, and it's it's supposed to be really difficult to recreate cutting words in English.
1: Yeah,
0: is the cutting words one of the two elements? And there's yes. no, you know, they're right. like they're compound words of some kind, you know, they're mm-hmm. so. Yeah. <clears throat> we, What draws you to the form, do you think?
1: I've I've pretty much abandoned haiku, really. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think what attracted me originally was precisely that that sense that you could put an image next to another image and cause something to happen. And so it's just like poetry boiled down to that essential moment of Encounter or metaphor or or surprise, and um, you know when you start to see the world through the kind of eyeglasses of of poetry, um, and you have this little form, suddenly like you you just start at least for me I just start to like you know go through my whole day with a series of haiku. So I hadn't written any in many many years. Um, because I'm always looking for capacious forms, you know, things where you can sort of do or say a lot more than you can in a haiku, which is such a humble form really. Um, and uh, and but, but then I was asked to do an assignment for alumni children at my university, John Carroll. And I said, I was sure, you know, I think that this would be kind of a fun exercise. And so I did a little brief, like five minute video on writing haiku. And in the process of kind of constructing some examples, I ended up writing about five or 10 of them just like very quickly, just looking around because there's always something interesting happening you know, if we just observe it.
0: Yeah. How, how do the students take to the assignment?
1: Well, I think that one of the most beautiful elements of uh, teaching poetry is inviting students back into their sensory experience to observe what's going on around them and and inside them and to see the world as the sort of unfolding drama that that sometimes we can't see either because we're distracted by phones or pandemic or, or just like the routines of every day where we're not really attuned to that attentiveness that I think true art requires. And so just giving them the technology to and the simplest technology, right, pen and paper and and, and your own perception um, to do that, basically to slow down their um, their apprehension. Uh, I think it's just a really it's a, it's a gift and and they're always I don't know they feel better from it. It's, you know, Naomi Shihab Nye, um, the poet, you know, said something like it's it's rare that people after they finish writing feel worse, and I think that that that, that speaks to my experience of. The gift of, of poetry and of writing
0: What is is that what draws you to poetry the the stuff that is pulling other people in
1: well i think what originally drew me to poetry was reading poems that seem to speak to the secret inner life um just reading poems like the Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock as a 17-year-old in an AP English class yeah. and feeling surprised that he understood what it felt like to be me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, like, of course, he's not writing about me, but he's sharing a secret of hyper-self-consciousness that one might often feel at that age. And just, you know, the the revelation of that, that, you know, we all have a kind of um, turbulence that's inside of us, particularly at that age. Um, just made me feel more at home in the world and less alone and and that that's what drew me in, is trying to figure out how to do that and how to how to use language or be used by language in ways that can help us come to some clarity about. The nature of being alive and, and the nature of things okay
0: yeah that's cool
1: I hope that doesn't sound too
0: airy or abstract but <laughs> no I I think that you have an academic's answers you're you're a, you're a <laughs> and that's a, that's a good thing because I think there's a precision in language that you have
1: okay.
0: that is a strength you know, i I'm, That's in no by no means meant to be an insult in any shape or form. <laughs> Please understand. <laughs> okay.
1: Good. All right. I'll accept that. <laughs> I think that sometimes academics use language in exactly the opposite way that uh, that poetry uses it. So, if I stepped back, um, you know, physically, I, I think it's because I sometimes associate the academic way of understanding to be. Um, to to be abstract, abstracting from, um, I don't know, some of the gifts of what poetry offers.
0: Yeah, I I would agree with that. I mean, it's sometimes I feel like when I talk to, um, some academics, they're just really enthralled with the language and they're using it in as heightened and elevated sense as they possibly can, can. (laughs) Fair. Right. <laughs> uh it, re- it reminds me of that Calvin and Hobbes. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar, but he he's doing a homework assignment and Hobbes comes up to talk to him and he's like, Hob, Hobbes says something about the assignment, and he's like, No, the purpose of language is to inhibit it inhibit clarity and reduce understanding. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What what do you think is the strength of the poetic form? Because you write in a lot of different styles. You 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 attack writing from many different angles professionally and creatively so what do you think the the strength is in the poetic form
1: it's it's hard for me to think of poetry without thinking of form to me it's the the concept of form which which i think just means um how we organize the language on the page and in our minds Um, is, is absolutely central. I think of poems as sort of like sonic architectures. Um, they're really, um, and sometimes they're visual architectures right on the page, they look a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, it could be a cathedral, it could be a, you know, a tumble down shack. Um, it doesn't matter, but it's a space, the, the form is the space that we can enter into, I think. And um, that's why I, I, I love the concept of form and why I'm obsessed with all manner of forms, like whether it's traditional received forms like sonnets or sestinas or haiku for that matter, or you know uh, invented forms or new forms like the Arabic, which we were talking about earlier, this poem read from right to left or golden shovels or you know, any manner of other things. And it's just like, you know, as Robert Frost said, you know, writing a poem without rhyme and meter is like playing tennis without a net. I think that that, that form offers us not simply constraint, but also, um, you know, shelter and enclosure and um, sets a kind of uh, opportunity for uh, parameters, which I think are kind of fun as a, as a writer, you know, as a poet. And I, that that's part of the thing I enjoy.
0: I once saw somebody say that poetry with form forces you to be creative because you have to creatively find your way to get around the obstacles that you set for yourself.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Yeats said uh, something like, all that is personal burns away. Um so uh, so everything that's packed in ice and salt is what remains. And I think he was making a reference to like the old fashioned ways of refrigeration, which is like you would pack it in ice or salt, you would salt meat, you know, to, to make it last. And mm-hmm. for him, for I think that that's a kind of way of talking about, um, you know, what are the structures that can kind of keep whatever personal particularities um, can sort of like not elevate them, but sort of preserve them in a way uh, that that might speak to people other than ourselves, right? So you or I might write a poem that's deeply important to us and deeply personal to us, but what makes it connecting to others has to do with kind of all the ways that we um, shape the language and, um, create a space for others to kind of imagine in that uh, alongside of us
0: okay. that's cool and i i like the, i like this idea that you know because so many people now it's kind of taboo to talk too much about form it's like nah free verse is the way to go you know we're, we're done with those tired old contrived mechanisms but one of the things so i'm i'm kind of like teasing this into another subject one of the things you had said once was um well it's not something you said one of the things that you work on is moving past post-colonial literature finding a new you know moving us into a sphere where we can build new culture without relying on these established uh, i may be wrong so correct me if i'm wrong um but I'm wondering if, you know, form will come back. If we're if we as a society are going to keep shifting, or we're going to find a new voice that is less post colonial? So I was wondering what your thoughts were on that, and yeah. how form plays into it. Right.
1: Well, my, you know, the definition of post colonial that that I would use kind of refers to um, um, a set of theoretical questions and understanding about the nature of societies that have moved from being um colonized societies like you know global south societies to ones that are um nominally kind of uh, ruling themselves but still trying to find um still trying to find cultural independence and economic independence and in some ways also political independence even though they're again nominally free so um my interest in that, ha, can, you know, ha, comes from my, uh, my background, um, but also, you know, the, but we're all, I mean, this is the thing, we're all, we're all part of a human migration. And so, you know, maybe my family's migration, migrations have been a little bit more recent than some others. Of course, there's lots of folk who, you know, have just come to the United States, but I, I suppose I've been really attuned to and interested in um, what the role of poets can be in, in a variety of s- social situations, not only our US situation, but in societies that are still kind of trying to find their way to um, to uh, you know independence and, and, and truth and justice. So I spent a year in Russia right after college studying contemporary Russian poets and how they were responding to the historical changes of the post-Soviet period. And that taught me a ton about, you know, just how poets are um, embedded in cultural and political and economic realities that are, that are specific and particular to their, to their um, you know, their countries, but that there's also something shared and, you know, I've spent some time over the years in Ireland and Northern Ireland and spent a little bit of time in the Middle East and Palestine and, um, you know, had the chance finally to visit Lebanon where my dad's family is from. And so I've always just been interested in the fact that um, wherever poets are, they're, um, Trying to find their way to say things that the society um, sometimes hasn't said about itself, or um, or is incapable of maybe seeing. So I'm interested in, you know, the truth-telling function, I guess, of a right being a, a poet, or the prophetic function, um, and also the sort of attentive, attentive sort of observant function of just sort of holding up a mirror sometimes to to what we're like. So I don't know if that answers your question exactly. I mean, you, you asked sort of about form and I would just say that, you know, um, sometimes, you know, if we're in a society that has very rigid ideas about how things are going, that exploding form and, and trying to, to really surprise people is a way to go. But if you're in a society that has a lot of uh, turmoil in it, form can, you know, offer a kind of paradoxical um, space of clarity and uh, and order in a sense. Um, so everything kind of depends on one situation, and um, I think. Um, but I think most of all, poets, the 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 relationship between po- form and kind of politics or you know the society is. Um, is really idiosyncratic for most writers. Most writers aren't really thinking about that; they're just thinking about what they're drawn to um, as the best way to explore the questions that they're interested in exploring. Okay, I hope that
0: didn't go too. <laughs> no, too good. no, that was that was incredibly interesting because I I didn't ask my question super well. I, what I was curious about was, I guess, do you see? free verse and a lack of form as a rejection of writing that came before it and like it, are we going to you did answer because I was going to ask are we gonna do you think we'll swing back in another direction do you think a new oh, yeah. will become important you know it's so to me it's
1: so weird because there are so many different poetry communities that um the idea that there's a dominant poetic uh, style uh, you know belies that kind of rhizomatic horizontal spread of poetry communities so you know if you're in like a slam poetry community you know there, there'll be all manner of conventions and it may be that that rhyme is really hot in that space um and sometimes meter certainly rhythm right and in in you know rap and hip-hop like rhyme is huge meter is huge not not the precise kind of um, metrical ways that we've been taught in school, but, you know, people have looked at like the use of triplet, um, rhyme, for example, or triplet, uh, meter. So it's a sort of like, uh, old school dactylic. I mean, that, that became really big in rhyme for, or in, in, in rap for a little, little while. So, um, yeah, I think that, the that there's a kind of really interesting multiplicity or diversity of approaches and questions. So I try not to like, Simply be in an oppositional space when it comes to um, to what I'm choosing to do, and really try to have a conversation with the traditions and the poets that matter a lot to me, and to try to surprise myself and hopefully maybe surprise a reader
0: as well. Mm. That's cool, and it's it allows you to keep an open mind. You know, it's different than saying, "Well, I'm a I'm a prose poet." And that's what I'm going to do for the next ten years. <laughs> I mean, Jeremy, seriously, like, I have resisted prose
1: poetry for most of my writing life because, oh, really? <laughs> as a reader, my eyes just start to like go. With, I don't know that it's just. I find it really a strange, difficult reading experience. But I've been writing uh, a number of prose poems lately, and it's almost like my way of kind of teaching myself how to enjoy the form or what the form what what is possible in a prose poem that is not necessarily possible in, in a lineated poem or you know the kind of impact it might have so you know absolutely I think that you know all manner of things are, are possible and sometimes poets are the stubborn ones who refuse to understand unless they practice the thing you know like you know, some some kids are like that they can't Learn something. They just have to do it and fail, and then they figure out how to do it. And maybe sometimes poets are like that that's too. <laughs> they must stick their hand in the wound of you know Jesus's side in order to believe that he's really back. That's the, that's sort of the poet doubting Thomas. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah. You got to make sure that the paint's actually wet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. You know, I I remember reading. Uh, John Berryman's dream songs and the very first time I did it and uh, I really because he has a form for each of his songs and by about 10 poems in I realized I liked how regular it was I started to rely on that structure and then you can sort of feel the cadences and you start to expect certain parts and then he mixes that up and so the form wound up being a very important part of the experience
1: totally Yeah, and you could probably write your own, you know, because you've internalized it.
0: Yeah, um, and I've read that book many times. Oh, cool! <laughs> I like that the, book. The full one or the seven, the original seventy-seven? The Cause... the original the original okay. seventy-seven. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite collections. Yeah. Um, when you, do you do you write in special forms a lot? Do you do you like to try out different ones, or is it more about immersion and experience?
1: I think they probably have two really different approaches to composition. One is I'm writing something and I'm seeking a form, you know, in a the way that Denise Levertov talks about organic form. Like I'm just writing something and I don't know where it's going, so I'm going to just try some things. Um, It could be a received form or it could be just literally, you know organizing the text in different ways longer lines shorter lines couplets tercets, uh quatrains you know prose um and then the other way is like you know if I get stubborn or interested in something or a new form for example zuhitsu what's a zuhitsu so I learned learned about that from reading one and, and you know a friend told me about it so I'm like okay I guess I'm just gonna write my own and, or Villanelle, which kind of bedeviled me for a number of years till I finally figured out how to do one. Um, so those are the two main ways, you know, like maybe saying, oh, I'd really like to try this form. I don't know if I'll be able to do it, but I'll try something. Yeah. And yeah. So if, if the marriage of the form and the content is happy, then then that's great. You know, like sometimes it just it works. It clicks, in and sometimes it doesn't. So,
0: yeah. What, what makes you, when you're seeking a poem, what makes you say, "Ah, this is the form I need," or, or is it just feeling it out until you're like, "Yeah, this works"? <laughs> I think I think it's a
1: pro. It's an intuitive process that ends with a a sort of, or at some point, crystallizes with a recognition that, oh yeah, this is like coming into shape coming together um yeah that's what I would say
0: okay you study war literature and you teach a class called war and literature um how did that interest come about and what draws you to that subject matter well I haven't taught that particular course for
1: some time but it, it was really important to me when I began um, my teaching career. And that's because my dissertation was focused on the intersections or the relationship between poets and the peace movement. That was my dissertation subject and it became my first book of criticism called Behind the Lines, War Resistance Poetry on the American Home Front*. And I was interested in that personally because my dad was a Vietnam veteran and You know, we lived at a particularly, I don't know, uncertain time in the Cold War, you know, during the, I just remember in the 80s and particularly the 80s, in the 90s, a little bit less so. I mean, once the Soviet Union fell, there was a little bit less of that tension. But, you know, the idea that we could all die in a nuclear annihilation was really part of our daily awareness, I guess, uncertainty. Um, the fact that my dad served in the Vietnam War and had, you know, I don't know, he was a advisor on a Vietnamese gunboat in the Navy and that impacted him. And when he came back, he's he did a lot of work sort of, um, with mental health in the mental health field, he's a psychologist and, um. Uh, we, he ended up also, uh, you know, our family ended up sponsoring a Vietnamese refugee family. And so as a very young person, I would have been aware the, of the sort of tenuousness of, um, I don't know, of life, that, that people flee their countries, that um, that there's something called war that's a horrible thing. Um, and so I don't think, you know, when you're young, those things don't go away. They're, they are can be deeply impactful or formative. So that, that's kind of why personally, but I think ethically and politically I beca- and, and poetically, I became really interested in, you know, if it is pretty clear that war is sort of almost always not only tragic a, a, a tragic kind of human phenomenon, but it's mm-hmm. often it can be avoidable and sometimes it's criminal um, you know how can the arts play a role in exploring mm-hmm. wars um, war's realities so that's it I mean so it's it's really personal for me but became kind of almost vocational as well. Uh,
0: and is that where the, you have a project called the Israeli-Palestinian Literature Project. Is that where that came from? Yeah, so I, this, I, I didn't get around to saying why I stopped teaching the war
1: and lit class, but the nutshell version is I became less certain that teaching a class like this was um, really what I wanted to be focusing on, that, you know, representations of war don't necessarily diminish um, our interest in war kind of actually could even paradoxically amplify it you know like no matter how tragic a narrative of war is it has a kind of viral capacity and i'm not interested in you know spreading that virus i guess so then i started thinking about okay what am i really interested in or how can i center the work of peacemakers more effectively in my teaching and um since that's that was you know what was part of my scholarship i wasn't really studying like you know war narratives because i was interested in war narratives i was interested in uh, narratives that expose the lies around war <laughs> that try to tell the truths about war so, you know, two, two courses that came to replace the and lit class were, or three courses, one was on peace building, and that course kind of splintered off into some different courses. So I was interested in, you know, conflicts or situations where societies have totally broken down, like Northern Ireland or South Africa, because of. Real inequality and oppression and, and differential treatment of communities, um, but you know, wound up in um, wound up in a process which ended a kind of violent military or insurgency, counterinsurgency type of situation. So, Northern Ireland's a great one to study for that. South Africa with its Truth and Reconciliation Commission is a great one to say for that. The Israel-Palestine one's a little bit more complicated because it is an ongoing situation of deep distress, injustice, um, and uh, precarity. Um, So that one's a little bit harder, but that one has always been a great one to teach for me because it's forced me to confront the ways in which peace without justice is submission in a way, and justice without peace or without, um, you know, some attempt for reconciliation can just look like revenge. So th- that's, that's what sort of unfolded for me in terms of my teaching life, and also my, my research, you know, um, around, around poems that I'm writing and books that I'm writing. Um,
0: that's kind of how it happened. So, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, see, and I think that's fascinating because one of the big criticisms of the English canon is that it's got a very pro-war, male-centric focus, and so I'm I'm really curious what your thoughts are about that. Like, how do you view the traditional English canon, and you know, do you think something should be done about it?
1: Well, I, I suppose it doesn't differ that much from probably most dominant. Uh, language traditions I mean it's interesting though you say that but you know most of the serious literature of the 20th century from World War I on has spoken of the tragedy of war of the futility of of war of the um, idiocy of war I mean think about like Catch-22, Slaughterhouse-Five, Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, Isaac Rosenberg You know, use of Komenyaka in the Vietnam War. Um, We have a whole century in American and English poetry, which is trying to tell the truth about it. Um, But you know, you go, you go back a little bit. You know, Charge of the Light Brigade. That's sort of (laughs) Tennyson, and back. Of course, there's there's there is a, you know, a a powerful. ethos of, you know, the glorification of the warrior. But so we might not have that in our serious literature, but you look at our popular literature and popular film and um, certain, you know, the movies, um, you'll find, you know, war depicted as a tragedy, but you'll also find, you know, Top Gun and all these really, you know, like 13 uh, year old boy uh, type of um, depictions of, of war. And yeah, that, so that's where it's migrated. It's a deeply powerful primal um, belief that war is a testing ground for uh, courage, and particularly for a certain kind of formation of male character. And it's very it's it's very hard to to challenge that. And but that's kind of one of my hopes in life is to. Try to offer other ways of being and becoming courageous and uh and you know particularly for men because that that's how i de- identify um you know that's really important to me so i mean there's many ways Yeah, you know, i'm not saying like my dad was a, a soldier you know like i'm not saying that there's no um you know we can't simply disband the army or anything right. but, yeah. you know so, some might want that you know because uh you know a standing army is just waiting to fight that's just the truth of the matter you know that's that's what thoreau said back in the uh, 19th century and
0: it's remains true today yeah yeah okay when you what did, did working on the literature project change you handling stories of that intensity I do? mean of course I but you know and so in a way I, I was always I mean for
1: me it's so personal that, um, that, I think I think I started my my PhD work with the sense the desire to find out what happened actually during the Persian Gulf War that was like one of my main focuses um, and also how do poets respond in ways that are commensurate with the the massiveness of the project of of modern war. So um, so yeah I was I was following through like sort of deeply humanly important things for me personally, but also politically and asking these questions, a citizen's questions about you know living in an empire, the most powerful country in the world, militarily, economically, and politically. Um, and how to act uh, in an ethical way, um, being at the center of this massive enterprise.
0: Okay, and this this might be an ignorant question, so I apologize. But how how are materials like this used? So you have this trove of literature and, and firsthand accounts and things. Yeah. Um, do journalists take it? Do other historians and other academics look at it? What what's the what function does it serve now? Now that you have it.
1: Oh, do you mean the online thing? I do. Yeah. Oh, um, you know, just I've never taken it down. It uh, one of the things that I wanted to do was share resources with other people who are interested in it and um and to make my students to to create a space for my students to share their research in a public setting. Including their interviews of family members who had served in wars for that war and literature project, or in the case of the Israeli-Palestinian literature project, you know, people who have been directly impacted by the situation in Palestine and Israel, um, to contribute to an archive of, you know, um, personal narratives that of of people impacted. So. Um, As it happens, actually, each of those archives on on my website has led to people contacting me who are interested in teaching courses in those areas. And, you know, particularly for the Palestine and Israel one, which is increasingly of interest, I think, to academics. Like, how do I teach this? situation which is so contentious and people feel so strongly about who are concerned by it and and yet the vast majority of Americans know nothing really about it Um, and so kind of creating a framework for um working with deeply contested narratives and what how literature can play a role in reducing the dehumanization that's part of those contests of of political narratives um is something that that i think that that class has done so you know people you know emailed me and asked about the course and like what i'm doing and how it's gone and things like that so yeah that's why i kind of um i haven't you know i've also gotten inquiries like somebody got angry at me for teaching that course um saying that i had you know. Had gotten it wrong, or that my students didn't understand, that I was confusing them. But I think that I, I believe that my work um, is really about having students come to encounter really different ways of understanding, you know, these big kind of political conflicts. Um, at a, at a human level. And so that, that's kind of what, why I continue that, that work.
0: Okay. All right, um, I think it's fascinating that you were studying poetry in other countries. So I, 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 I'm curious, what was, you had said how poets in, in like Russia and you know, Lebanon were, were other countries were similar, like what they shared. What differences did you notice?
1: Well, I came with the research question in Russia, like how are the poets responding to the situation? And knowing that there was a history and legacy of Russian poets being feared by the state and revered by the people. um, But what I found was by the time I arrived with the fall of the Soviet Union, um, people were far more concerned with the, their everyday material troubles than they were about poetry. <laughs> so what, one of the things I kind of realized was that the free market is um, not good for, for poetry. <laughs> that, that poetry has an outsized relationship to its society when it's existing in a totalitarian or a deeply unfree society. And so the paradoxes um, that poetry, uh, poetry's if poetry is supposed to be, you know, pro, you know, a, a prophecy, or if it's supposed to speak to truth to power, that may be a sign, uh, and we we expect that that may be a sign that that the society is deeply unwell, <laughs> and that. Uh, you know, really the ideal is that poets kind of function um, more as fellow citizens rather than um, as the the newspaper, the voice of conscience, the uh, prophetic warning. Um, that's kind of a long answer, but simply to say that everything is contextual, I think. Um, and that, but, but I think poets, wherever they are, face the same questions, which is like, you know, to what degree can, you know, my words, you know, awaken people to the predicament of their lives and our collective lives. And how can I, um, through this kind of simple, humble, and even meager act of putting words on a page, offer something to the people around me who are struggling and who are who are hurting and who need you know who could use i don't know some some kind of clarity or some kind of uh um some kind of light i guess Okay.
0: and I, sorry go ahead
1: i could say more you know like you know in russia the poets you know, they would say, you know, we're, you're interested in, you know, being a political poet, but we're interested in escaping politics. <laughs> you know, the, the overwhelming and toxic nature of politics was what um, poetry offered us freedom from. And so the, the idea that somehow we would want to wed those things seems absolutely bizarre to us. But in, in our society, of course, poetry had been so depoliticized At least in the sort of academic traditions, that it seemed that that was something I wanted to do, which is to say, like, instead of just talking about, you know, my dead grandpa or whatever, like, what, you know, which is, you know, a loss worthy of mourning, of course, but like, how can I say something sort of more substantial to? Our collective question about where we're moving as a people or as a as a society or a planet
0: okay do you think do you see a line between where the academic side of the poem stops and the empathetic part begins
1: uh i I'm not sure I would divide it out that way, but I think what I hear you saying is like. Um, well, I think that I think that underneath that question you can you can tell me if I'm wrong, is where what's the job of a poem, actually? like, what is a poem supposed to do? Is a poem supposed to show its, you know,, uh, my friend Sarah Gridley would say. Uh, her teacher told her not to flash her trash which sort of is like as a way of saying like are you just showing that you're really smart by you know these these very lapidary ways of using language or are you really trying to touch you know touch our hearts you know or really trying to say something that's true and um, yeah I would say like if it doesn't have that those latter elements it isn't trying to Waken us to, I don't know, to give us a little, um, you know, a little wound or a little opening, a little homeopathic wound, a little, a little um, waking spark. Then, then it hasn't done its job. You know, I'm not interested in poet poems that just are um, showing their mastery of a form or their, you know, their wit. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sort of dull romantic in the sense that I do want poems that sort of break our, break our hearts open. That, that's kind of what what I hope that I can do ultimately. Um, intellectual games, language games, that sort of stuff. It's just like, it's, it's a, it's, for me, it's a distraction and a dead end. Uh, for other people, it's endlessly delightful, but that's, that's not what I'm trying to do, I guess, in, in my
0: writing. Sure. That's the second question you rescued for me. I appreciate it. Oh. <laughs> I asked, I asked a question that in a very black and white way, when I wanted a gradient, and that's <laughs> okay. Appreciate, I appreciate you reeling that in. <laughs> all
1: right, all right.
0: Well,
1: <laughs> oh. well, I'm just like trying to hear, hear you know, like the heart of the question, which is a really good one, you know, because poet poetry has often been characterized as, you know, like complicated or too hard and so where where's the space where you know is there a rapprochement you know a a sort of peace that can happen between you know the the
0: arcane
1: uh of a poem and and you know what's really at the heart of it yeah
0: yeah i and i like asking that question from people who both teach it and write you know because they have their own sense of where that you know, those divisions fall, or or not divisions, but they're not exactly symbiotic either, you know what I mean? Sure. I was just curious. Thank you. Yeah. Would you like to read a second poem before we head out? Sure. This is a poem that I
1: think will end my next book. It's called Devotional, and it's sort of a poem for the light, which is think a universal religious symbol for I don't know the divine I suppose in us and uh, it's inspired by an Islamic surah um, but you know the it's in every tradition my my own tradition being a Catholic tradition but so I I may have picked up some of this from this Islamic um, prayer that I read but also the Psalms the Hebrew Psalms And I suppose it's a wish. So here it goes, called Devotional. Light my face and light the flesh of my flesh. Light each my eyes and light inside my sight. Light the light that makes me light in the bones and in my hands light and in my loins light. And light your light before and behind me, above and beneath me, light to my right, light to left light to my enemies who in the moral dark will use my light against me light the dull swords of my ribs the thick fists within light the blood hot rooms pulsing there light the gates when they swing wide to the stranger light more light on my tongue in the light light more light in the black light and when it's time to snuff this wick light that light
0: Thank you. Sure. It's enlightening. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. Philip, thank you so very much for joining me. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to be with you.